from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We are on the road from the National Farm Machinery Show here at the Great Plains booth this week. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Supply chain struggles are still a major hurdle for equipment manufacturers. Absolutely, it's been an issue. Supply chains have been you know, highly disrupted in the last 12, 18, 24 months. We'll tell you not only what's in the shortest supply, but how much longer it could last. Weather and war. What's the story brewing in the commodity markets? They've had what some people would say is the worst drought in 60 years. We're checking in with Machinery Pete to see what's trending in the used equipment market. And in John's world. They're taking down the power lines. Now for the news, well, will a farm bill get done this year? Some leaders in Washington giving their thoughts this week. At a Farm Bill listening session at the World Ag Expo in Tulare, California this week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy answered yes when asked whether a Farm Bill would pass this year with Democratic support. Well, I hope if there's one thing you see today is that this new Congress hears you. you got 10 members, bipartisan, the chairman of the Ag Committee, and this is the year we do the Farm Bill. House Ag Chair G.T. Thompson also predicts the House will get the job done on time, and he's setting the agenda. Well, the House actually takes the lead in writing the bill this time around. Uh, we, we alternate that with farm bills, and so that, that pen is firmly in my hands. Thompson and McCarthy share priorities such as enhancing crop insurance to help specialty crop growers and provide risk management to mitigate inflation and high input prices. However, McCarthy signaled Republicans will review work requirements in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamps. The latest consumer price index shows while inflation is still the story, it does seem to be easing. It shows prices climbed to 6.4% in January from a year earlier. While that's down slightly from the previous month, it's still higher than what economists expected, but it is down from the peak in June, which was the highest reading since 1981. However, the CPI actually affirming a half a percent in January compared to a tenth of a percent in December, it signals that possibly more interest rate hikes are ahead. Mexico has now issued that decree regarding U.S. GMO corn we told you about last week. Under the decree, it is scrapping a deadline to ban imports of corn for animals and manufactured products, but will still not allow imports for flour and tortillas along with glyphosate. Right now, most U.S. corn exports to Mexico are used for livestock feed. Mexico says the new decree does not violate anything under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. The decree went into effect this week. Politico reports the office of the U.S. Trade Representative is reviewing it. Well, 2022 will go down in the record books as a big year for beef exports. U.S. Meat Export Federation revealing the year-end numbers, showing it was a record for beef exports last year. U.S. beef export volume was up 3% from the previous year. That value was also a record. That's nearly 40% above the previous five-year average. Yeah, it'll be a new record uh, on volume and value. We're going to be up three or four percent on volume and 
value is going to come in just under 12 billion in sales, which is easily a record over last year's 10.5 billion. And I think the real theme here is it's broad-based growth. For 2022, pork exports were down more than 8% from a year ago. That's largely due to China sales dropping 26% after hitting a record in 2021. Mexico was the leading pork customer, setting a record for volume in 2022. USDA forecast beef exports will decline roughly 13% this year. Pork shipments are expected to inch up slightly. And moving grain out of the country down the Mississippi River, that situation is improving. That's after water levels hit historic lows last year. Mike Steenhook of the National Soy Transportation Coalition saying export operators report things are returning to normal. He says that's especially the case along the lower Mississippi River. You can see the gauge height is much improved in Memphis. There are also improvements in the river between St. Louis and Cairo, Illinois, but there are still some barge loading restrictions. He says water level margins are expected to remain tight in the St. Louis area until water flows increase later this spring. Well, a winter storm across the Midwest, severe storms, including right here in Louisville for National Farm Machinery Show. So what weather are we watching next week? We'll have a check of your weather next. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2023 National Farm Machinery Show is brought to you by Great Plains. Harvest starts here on the web at greatplainsag.com and by Tyrannus Acre Forward the new standard in crop intelligence. Learn more at acreforward.com. Well, the Midwest, North, and even the East Coast recovering from a winter storm. But what about the rest of the country? Meteorologist Chuck Heaver is filling in again this week, and he has a check of your forecast. Chuck. All right, first of all, let's take a look at the drought monitor. Wow, what a story this is, right? The eastern half of the country is in really good shape. The western half of the country is dry, and the center bullseye is continually extremely dry. We cannot seem to put a dent in that. Off to the southeast, we did put a dent because we had a lot of thunderstorms that had pushed through along the frontal boundary, and you can see that here. Most of this side of the country is normal. The west side, the mountains are all in a drought condition, and then, of course, the West Coast that had all that rain is looking pretty decent as well. But again, this was all due to all those thunderstorms that had pushed through. This next week, what are we looking at for temperatures? Well, we're going to be below normal. We'll have some cold air from Canada pushed down in. And what that will do is seesaw up this side of the country under high pressure, and that'll give us above normal temperatures, all that warm air pushing up. And in terms of precipitation with that warmer air, we will get some more above normal conditions in terms of precipitation below normal down to the south and west. And this will be association with some frontal boundaries that will slide through. Now we're going to have a lot of the cold air up to the north. You're not going to see huge intrusions until later here. You can see a more zonal pattern. Then you get this dip right here into the northeast that brings some cold air down on Monday. Then things rebound again. Then you get the dip out to the west. That brings cold air then on the west coast. And then things go more zonal. We'll have most of the country looking pretty decent by the end of the week. Again, it's going to be relatively mild throughout the entire country unless you're in one of these uh, cold air intrusions. Okay, the precipitation forecast for the next 10 days. We're looking at a lot of precipitation here in association with frontal boundary thunderstorms off to the west. A couple systems will bring in some precip out there. And in terms of snowfall, boy, you got to go all the way up to the northern part of the country and out to the mountain west to get some snowfall out there because it's just not going to be cold enough 
to produce a lot of snow. All right, here we go. We're looking at Monday, February 20th. Okay, that's going to be relatively tranquil. Some mountain snows out to the west. And on Wednesday, we'll have this frontal boundary here that'll kick off some showers in the center part of the country. Some snow again up in the colder air mass up to the north on February 22nd. And then on Friday, the 24th, we'll have again some mountain snows out to the west, a little bit of precipitation down to the south and along the east coast again with an association with another frontal boundary. That's it for weather. We're going to toss it back to time. Well, it was another volatile week in the commodity market. So what are our analysts keeping an eye on in the weeks and even the months ahead? Andrew Jackson, Joe Vaklovic and Alan Hoskins join us for our live taping from right here at National Farm Machinery Show next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Broad adaptability, high yield potential, solid agronomics, great late season health. The foundations of a successful season start with Golden Harvest Game Changing Corn. Find your hybrid at GameChangingCorn.com. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Excited to be here for our live taping of U.S. Farm Report at National Farm Machinery Show. Always a great audience. A lot of folks coming back. A big thanks to Great Plains as well as Tyrannus for sponsoring our live taping here at National Farm Machinery Show. Joe Vaklovic, Andrew Jackson, as well as Alan Hoskins joining us today for the discussion. Joe, I'll start with you. You know, there's a lot of different fundamentals right now at play. We're talking about the situation in Ukraine, talking about concerns of, you know, weather in Argentina. I know you have been talking about avian flu and the impact as well. But when you look at the main market drivers today, what is leading the charge? I think South America has been a tremendous influence on the soybean market and on the soy complex in particular. Argentina's crop is going to end up being, their soybean crop, it's going to end up 20 to 30 percent below what we thought it may have been prior to the growing season. They've had what some people would say is the worst drought in 60 years. Um, just today, as a matter of fact, there was one real well-followed private group that reduced its production estimate for the Brazilian soybean crop. And the Brazilian soybean crop's still gonna be record large, but that is something that I think has helped to keep the old crop soybean market above $15 on the board. It's probably helped the new crop bean market also. It's probably helped the corn market to some extent. So I think that that Argentina weather story in terms of um, you know, your major producers, that's probably been the biggest one the last couple of months. Andrew, but when you look at that situation, I mean, when you look at Argentina, I know the verdict's still out on exactly what that crop size is going to be. There were some changes to Brazil, but still, it's a really big Brazilian uh, you know, crop down there. They've had nearly ideal weather in some areas. So does that change the trajectory at all when it comes to the supply and demand balance sheet here in, in the U.S. based on those uh, unknowns right now? Well, if the Brazilian crop wasn't so big, the Argentine story would have more legs than what it already does. So first of all... Um, Brazil's going to have a lot of exportable supplies, and, and it's going to be halfway about logistics. So when, when it's time for those beans to come to the market, it's also time for those to come to export, all right, which means it's going to start cutting into, into our export window. So really the U.S. has to make hay when the sun shines, and that time for us is, you know, December, January, February. Uh, once we get past that window, it gets really tough for us to be competitive. Ellen, you know, we're, we're talking now about South America, but planting is knocking on the door and a lot of those decisions are being made when you're talking to a lot of your your customers right now are there big acreage 
decisions being made, or is it pretty much going to be the same as same as sticking with the rotation? I think that's going to be regional based upon that. I've talked to some producers that are going much heavier corn this year than what they have historically. But I think most people that I'm working with and most of the other bankers that I talk to, the producers are doing a good job in looking at the opportunities that are presented based on their break-evens. And I think they're doing better job, a better job, pardon me, of putting together good marketing plans with folks like Joe and Andrew. And they're doing a much better job in following those plans, but understanding they're not set in concrete either. Joe, right now, what does the trade think that the acreage is going to be? What do you think we're trading at this point? What are the numbers? Uh, everything economically that I'm aware of favors corn acres versus soybean acres. Every balance sheet that I've seen, uh, the vast majority of them, there's always exceptions, but most of the balance sheets that I've seen for your, say, high-density production areas in your I-states, uh, Minnesota into South Dakota, they favor corn uh, pretty drastically. Uh, the, the one issue is that inputs are really high, so if, if somebody doesn't necessarily want to lay out 1100 bucks an acre to plant corn and they want to go the cheaper route, I suppose they could go to soybeans. And then you've always got the, the normal rotation crowd. I did a survey of my uh, subscriber base uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and the most common answer, are you going to change acres, same rotation, if, if you're going to change more corn and more soybeans, the most common answer is always stick with the rotation. But there's going to be those swing acres, and those swing acres, uh, generally speaking, on a national basis, they should, they should go to corn. Andrew, you know, where you are, kind of in this, this Mid-South area, are you seeing a big, a big shift in acreage? Well, the, pretty much what Joe says. I think corn pencils, corn probably has more upside potential. Uh, but I do think that uh, there were maybe some acres that, uh, maybe some rotations that went heavier beans over the last year or so, especially with high inputs last year. Inputs are down this year. So I do see some of those rotations going back towards corn, maybe just a little bit. I mean, as far as total acres, acres corn plus soy, there are some people that still think that we're going to be 180 plus. Uh, I've seen a lot of estimates in the 179 million plus. I have a hard time getting there personally just because last year we were 176, records 180, .0, uh, 180 and a half, and it took zero prevent plant to get there. Alan, what is, when, whenever farmers right now are looking at their balance sheets, kind of penciling things out, looking at acreage decisions, what's something that maybe they, that needs to be at the forefront of their minds that maybe they're not thinking about at this point? One of the things that, in my opinion, they need to probably look very, very closely at is what is going to be their true return? How does it fit into their long-term strategy? Because Andrew's exactly right. We did see some guys go heavier on beans the last couple of years. They're back into corn, and I think they just need to be more mindful of the effect that the change may have on them two or three years down the road. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. <laughs> Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. Well, there's a lot of talk here at National Farm Machinery Show about electrification of equipment. But electrification on John's farm has a bit of a different meaning. He joins us now from his farm for John's World this week. I was driving around the farm last week, checking to see if our gravel roads could bear up under the grain trucks. They can't. When I drove by this field of ours, and I felt an odd sense of something being wrong. It wasn't until I got all the way down here to the corner at the end of the half mile rows that I put my finger on it. 
The power line that had run along this field as long as I have been alive was gone. And judging from the lack of wires on the poles along our field just beyond, they could be removed soon as well. I was stunned and elated. Fields adjacent to a road without power poles are so much easier to keep neat. It means ending the dreaded back and forth with the crude trimming with a bat wing mower, which even the best operators can only make look, well, not too sloppy. The practice of sterilizing the ground around the pole with non-selective herbicides just kind of makes me uncomfortable as we are trying to convince non-farmers how prudently and minimally we use chemicals. Following up the mower with a string trimmer became a job that encouraged many farm boys to get a degree in anything else. It worked for me, but then I had to use a scythe made with a sharpened mammoth bone, of course. Bare of poles, the outside row can be perfectly straight and with precise margins and planted and harvested without looking back repeatedly in panic to check to see if the unloading auger, or in the old days, the planter marker was left out mistakenly. The pole that sat on this corner bent my combine auger some decades ago as I tried to get just a little too cute opening up the field. Maybe I can finally move on from that nightmare. The line has been essentially stranded for years. It's unconnected at both ends, and obviously it didn't pass any houses or buildings. I tried to find out what the Illinois rules for when power lines can be decommissioned are, but never got a call back. There is, though, a bittersweetness to all this, because I remember grandparents recounting the staggering benefits rural electrification had for farms, and what a joyous moment it was when power came to your farm. At one time, this line provided electricity to as many as seven different dwellings, according to my dubious memory. If you know exactly where to look, you can still detect some traces. Truly rural America, that's for me outside incorporated towns, has been depopulating for decades. Ironically, the completion of electrification of farm country may have occurred just as farm population was beginning to decline, at least around here. Thanks so much, John. All right, we need to take a quick break. I know you're looking at a lot of new iron here, but what about a story of some antique iron? Machine repeat, he has tractor tails next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Duracade Viptera. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Head with me this week. We are off to Massachusetts to check out a Ward's Twin Row. We have a 1941 Ward's Twin Row. And this was, uh, you know, your classic tractor story. Ran when it was parked 30 years ago. Uh, had a six inch tree growing up through the frame. It really wasn't missing anything. Uh, in terms of the body parts, but the engine was trash and had to be rebuilt. It's a four-cylinder Hercules. There's an engine rebuilder right down the road here that took him a year to do it, but he got it done. It's one of my favorite tractors because it's so dependable. And I took it to the uh, Rate Farm Elliott tractor show up in Maine uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was just amazed at you know, how few people had seen this model tractor before. They're not so common in New England. More in the Midwest, yeah. You can find some of them out there, but 
There's probably only a handful of these in New England. When I bought it, it had remnants of original blue paint on it, and I couldn't find anybody on the internet. Nobody ever heard of one being blue. I would have loved to have had it blue because of my 20 tractors, most of them are red. I actually have a sign in front of my house that says wanted old farm tractors and I get some of my best finds from that. So a guy, guy called me, said he had one and it was two towns over. I went over and looked at it and he came down a little bit, I went up a little bit and I ended up getting it and I'm so glad that I did. Tractor fever is a, is a real serious disease and uh, you best be ready for it if you get, get hooked, it's, it's going to take you over. Thanks so much, Greg. Well, walking around here at National Farm Machinery Show, there is still one issue top of mind for many equipment manufacturers, and that's issues with the supply chain. So what is the underlying issue forcing some equipment manufacturers to even throttle back production? We're going to cover that in our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, supply chain issues have really been the center of headlines since 2020. But here we sit in 2023 and talking to some equipment manufacturers, the situation hasn't really improved. And in some cases, it may be getting worse. So what is the underlying issue? And is there hope that we could finally see improvements when it comes to supply chain headaches this year? That's our Farm Journal report this week. Supply chain challenges consistently hit agriculture in 2022. We are conditioned to expect the black swans to the point where they're no longer black swans. They're just kind of inevitable disruptions. Rabobank Sam Taylor says replacement costs for crop inputs are currently cheaper than a year ago, but a sector still fragile to supply chain issues is the farm machinery and equipment sector. The supply chain challenges that we experienced in 21 and 22 are with us for a little bit longer. National Farm Machinery Show this week had booth after booth displaying the latest and greatest in technology and equipment, but leaders in the equipment industry say supply chain issues are a hurdle in bringing new products to market. Absolutely, it's been an issue. Supply chains have been you know, highly disrupted in the last 12, 18, 24 months. We sat down with John Deere's Chief Technology Officer, Jamie Heineman during CES in January, and the tail end of our conversation covered the uncertainty supply chain issues have injected into the ag equipment sector. Our supply base is telling us that, that things get markedly better as we get towards the last half of the year. Good news down the road, but it means the disruptions are still present today and could be that way for several more months. It's progressively getting better. Uh, our third quarter uh, and fourth quarter of last year showed us you know, that the improvement in our ability to deliver the products that are being ordered to the marketplace. I expect that to continue in the first quarter of this fiscal year for us. Association of Equipment Manufacturers Kurt Blades also sees improvement on the horizon. They're pointing to this lasting for probably another few you know, a few months, but maybe by the end of the year, we'll begin to see uh, some, some return to normalcy, uh, whatever normalcy looks like. But he warns today that equipment manufacturers across the world are grappling with the same problem. What is the one thing that is in tight supply? It is not one thing. It's a whole collection of things. In fact, it's some of the things you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear about. Uh, microchips get, you know, get talked about a lot. We had this level of challenge. Maybe now it's a little bit less. Uh, but we're not out of the woods. So it could be tracks one day, it could be tires the next day. We have a lot of very unique, you know, high value custom castings 
a heat-treated custom casting that you can't just go get, and it's a very unique supplier. A little bit of a whack-a-mole strategy. It's always something new. Something new is coming up every time, and it just happens to be that, you know, castings uh, are our, our current issue and the current challenges, but it's always something different. AEM recently conducted a survey of its members showing the biggest supply issue in the ag sector is tracks and those included components and its semiconductors and chips proving to be an issue for both agriculture and construction. But as Case IH's North American lead Kurt Coffey told us this week, the supply chain issues continue to vary. The last year or two has been custom castings, chips, tracks, tires. Um, we actually pulled strategic sourcing in and went on third party markets to go buy chips from third parties and truly millions of dollars of chips from a third party, bring them in, ship them to our partner supplier to finish a complete good so we can keep our lines going. Blade says while semiconductor chips receive a lot of press, the supply chain strains are also coming from the items you don't normally think about. But the other things that are interesting are like wiring harnesses, which oftentimes are made in the Ukraine or seat cushions, which are made in Texas in areas that were destroyed by floods. Uh, it's not one thing, it's a collection of things. No matter what the item is in scarce supply, the problem is bigger than one part or one company. The underlying issue with all supply chain challenges are labor. AEM recently surveyed 179 equipment manufacturer executives about the supply chain late last year. 98% of respondents say they still face supply chain issues with more than half experiencing supply chain conditions growing worse, not getting better. If you point it back to one thing, it is a worker shortage and that one's probably going to be with us for a while. And that's why the industry could grapple with labor challenges for years to come, forcing companies like Case IH to come up with creative solutions. The pivot to, to get product to customers is doing different things with labor, sourcing, strategic sourcing. What we're doing actually, I would use one word and it's we're being very disciplined. Getting creative is exactly what the equipment industry is doing. The AEM survey showed equipment manufacturers of all sizes are increasing inventory and supplier base, creating a more vertical integration of supply chains, certifying alternative suppliers, as well as focusing more on supply chain reliability than price. Despite the constant supply chain obstacles, equipment executives are optimistic. We're not just hearing that it's progressively getting better. We're sensing it, we're feeling it, we're seeing it come through in our, our, our deliveries. So uh, as long as things continue on that trajectory, I feel pretty good about next year. We're not out of the woods, but we're certainly in a better place than where we were, let's say a year, year and a half ago. Uh, but we're just going to keep fighting to make sure that we're ready for whatever the customers need from us. Growing optimism, even with some bumps, still ahead as ag equipment manufacturers navigate uncharted waters with the supply chain. From troubles with supply chain to troubles that we have had moving grain, is that situation also improving? We have Joe Baklovic, Andrew Jackson, and Alan Hoskins rejoining us for our live taping from right here at National Farm Machinery Show. That's next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend from National Farm Machinery Show. Joe Vaklovic, Andrew Jackson, as well as Alan Hoskins joining us. All right, last weekend on the show, Joe, we were talking about the suspected Chinese spy balloon, what potentially it could mean for relations with the U.S. and China, and especially when it comes to export demand. When you look at China today, how much risk is on the table when it comes to demand? Uh, China doesn't really want to buy anything from us, I don't think, but they have to because they can't secure everything that they need from Brazil or from elsewhere. They used to buy a lot of corn from Ukraine, and they can't really do much of that anymore either. So I think that uh, we're going to be in this 
continued kind of Cold War situation with China. The United States is in a proxy war with Russia, and Russia is very closely tied to China. Uh, and then you've got the additional issue with China regarding Taiwan, which is all related to microchips and semiconductors. Um, we, this uh, CHIPS Act that Biden signed uh, last year kind of cuts China out of any sort of microchip that's made with U.S. technology. The U.S. technology is the best technology. That's the, the root of the Taiwan problem. That's why Nancy Pelosi goes to visit Taiwan. So I don't see the tensions uh, going anywhere anytime soon. So do you think that there is a lot of risk for farmers in the room? I mean, do they need to think about ultimately how it could impact their farm? I think that China will buy from us what they need from us and not anything more. Andrew, when you look at the cash market, I know you keep a close eye on the cash market. So, you know, kind of take us into what, what situation has, has led us here. And do you see the cash market changing um, as we head through the next several months? Well, one of the things I see in the cash market today is, uh, at least you know, keep in mind I'm in the east, uh, one of the things that I'm seeing today is basis is really weak, kind of on its butt from what it, what it was, you know, just a month ago. What led us there? I think uh, I'm probably in the minority when I think that uh, – I think we probably carried more corn in, at least in the eastern U.S., than what the USDA realized. Um, we had a little bit shorter crop. Uh, basis levels got really bad on the river. Um, but by the time we were through harvest, I think at least in Kentucky, I think we realized that the crop was maybe a little bit better than what we feared it could have been. Uh, so the farmer was, in, was heavily incentivized to store grain through harvest. Then they were tied holders of grain into December. There was a lot of income deferral. Um, so with that, um, a lot of grain hit the market in January, and that's really got a lot of the southern markets a little bit plugged up. Um, so along with uh, you know some natural disaster type things that have shut some big uh, shut some of the bigger users down. So that's kind of got basis down a little bit. As far as the cash market and what the farmer needs to do, look at what the structure is in your local bid. Uh, you know, look at what your interest rates, look at what your cost of carry is, because your cost of carry on a $7 commodity at 7% interest is 49 cents annually. Okay, that's about 4 cents a month. All right, so if you're looking at a 12 cent inverse to July, and we're five months away from there, that's another 20 cents plus 12, 32 cents. You've got to have a 32 cent improvement in basis to break even, let alone quality risk, uh, let alone headache, um, and all those other things. There are better ways to speculate, in my opinion, in the futures market rather than holding cash in the bin. Mm. Interest rates, Andrew mentioned it. As we look at the interest rates, I mean, we know operating loans, uh, significant increase in, in cost there. Mm -hmm. But when you look at interest rate in that situation today, what are some of the impacts on the farm level that maybe we're not talking about at this point, Alan? Well, obviously, operating lines will be number one. One of the things that I would say that we're not looking at maybe as closely as we should, and I'll say this can be the banking industry as well as producers. What loans do producers have that are going to be maturing, or pardon me, repricing, or maybe maturing, in the next three to five years? If interest rates stay where they are, what does that look like to the cash flow and the profit and loss statement if those loans reprice or are rewritten at today's rates? I think that's something that probably deserves a little more attention than it's getting. Joe, real quick, um, I know avian flu, You've talked about avian flu a little bit, but when you look at the demand standpoint, are you concerned about when you look at it spreading across some of these other countries, uh, the impact ultimately that it, it could have on some of our demand? Yeah, there were some reports uh, just this week, as a matter of fact, that they had bird flu in Argentina. Uh, Brazil said they did not detect it, but some other South American countries as well. I mean, we've had bird flu in the United States. Uh, 
commercial poultry operations because of this. So, I mean, it's a risk. It's something to be monitored. Does it matter today? No. But it's, it's something that I think we probably have to keep an eye on. Joe, Andrew, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take another quick break, and then we, we will be back with much more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. Please stay with us. We'll travel about 200 miles northeast of here, and you will find Marshall Ruff, an Ohio farmer who takes to heart leadership as well as business innovation. But really, her main mission is to educate. And that's why she was named this year as the 2023 Trailblazer Award by Top Producer. Marsha Ruff considers herself blessed to live and work in agriculture. And from an early age, she knew she would farm. I grew up as a farm girl and I loved it. And I always want to be a farm girl. So even though I'm this age, I'm still a farm girl. Today, that farm girl runs Ruff Farms near Circleville, Ohio with her husband Mark and three children. The diversified operation includes various ag businesses, beef cattle, and nearly 4,000 crop acres. We raise corn and beans and wheat, main crops around here. So we do that, but the offshoots of that are that we have an ear corn business. We're already raising the corn, but we have this kind of specialty part of it, doing the ear corn. And then we also have a container loading facility to market our beans. They partnered with Farmers Business Network to build and operate that grain handling and container loading facility. In its second year, they're under contract to deliver beans to CHS for a premium. The most recent containers we've loaded, and the ones we'll be loading then from here on out um, this season, likely, will go to Malaysia. But those are also food grade going into the, the human consumption market. And speaking of business innovation, they also do lawn seeding, install drain tile, and have a 50-acre ear corn business that started as an FFA project for eldest son, Matt, until the COVID-19 lockdown. During the pandemic, when everything shut down, people must have been home watching their squirrels, and the sales went through the roof. Instead of 15 boxes a day, he was selling 150 boxes a day. So today, it's a full-time enterprise managed by younger brother Mitchell. Sales are primarily on Amazon with customers across the U.S. Marsha plays an integral role in this and every other aspect of their operation. So I've drilled beans. I've drilled wheat in the middle of the night and following, the, following along as things get harvested and things like that. Um, you know, I'm the shuttle driver for everybody moving pieces. I've delivered the meals to the field. In addition to agriculture, Marsha has another passion, education. My heart is with kids. Every, every job I ever have, you can probably attribute it that I'm teaching. She's been a 4-H advisor for 25 years and a teacher for 27 years. And she uses that role to educate and advocate for agriculture and food production. Do you know the hen is the girl chicken that lays the eggs? Yes, I do, and now you know it too. You know, if I can work in those things. Marcia says as a female producer, she's broken the stereotype about farming with her students. And her message for other females is not to trivialize their role in the operation. You don't have to be the one that's driving the combine to be more than the farm wife. There's so many working parts about what goes on on a farm. And that attitude and spirit is why Marcia Ruff is this year's Executive Women in Agriculture Trailblazer Award winner. I was able to meet her during Top Producer this year. What a genuine, just amazing 
individual. Congratulations again, Marsha. All right, we were talking about the semiconductor and chip challenges that still plague the equipment industry, but is there possibly a solution to that, bringing that production domestically? That's customer support next. Chips or ammonia? U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Steel Closing Wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Farm Journal report, we talked about the supply chain issues, including still concerns with getting those semiconductors and chips. But is there a solution by bringing some of that production here domestically? That's a question in customer support this week. Dennis Zaner in Lawrenceville, Illinois, has a question about the new push for semiconductor factories. Recently, we have seen much discussion on the urgency to produce semiconductor chips in this country so that much of our equipment requiring those chips will be more readily available. I have read that one of the most important scientific discoveries of the 20th century is the process of making anhydrous ammonia. Wouldn't it make sense for some effort to encourage more domestic production of NH3? It would appear that this is a product that is just as important as microchips to keep our food supply secure. Thanks for the question, Dennis. And the answer looks pretty hopeful and good news. We're doing both. The 2022 CHIPS Act does exactly what the name says, provides $270 billion for semiconductor manufacturing facilities like the much-publicized huge Ohio Intel plant, the 22 Inflation Reduction Act, which is really an, a renewable energy act, provides about $370 billion for all kinds of projects that help energy and manufacturing processes reduce carbon emissions. This includes funding for cleaner ammonia plants. Ammonia is a remarkably simple product with a molecule made of one nitrogen atom and three hydrogen atoms. The nitrogen is plentiful and free. About 80% of our air is nitrogen and it's easily isolated. The hydrogen has been just as easy to come by as well. Just knock off a couple of atoms off of methane, CH4, which we call natural gas. The issue has been what happens to the remaining gases, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. New processes have been developed to manufacture ammonia with much lower or no carbon emissions. Blue ammonia uses the traditional process but captures the CO2 byproduct and sequesters it underground. Green ammonia uses a carbon-free hydrogen source like electrolysis of water, passing electric current through H2O, yielding hydrogen and oxygen. Since passage of the IRA, several blue and a few green ammonia plants have been announced. Agriculture uses about 80% of all ammonia, so fertilizer producers are spearheading this. Here is a partial list I could find. I hope this is where we are heading, but the U.S. is now noted for its inability not to get, not to get things done on time, on budget, or at all, largely due to regulations and local opposition. Thanks so much, John. Well, when we caught up with Machinery Pete a year ago, Really, when you look at used equipment, demand was skyrocketing. So now a year later, 
where does used equipment demand and supply set? We're going to catch up with Machinery Pete from right here at National Farm Machinery Show next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Broad adaptability, high yield potential, solid agronomics, great late season health. The foundations of a successful season start with Golden Harvest game-changing corn. Find your hybrid at gamechangingcorn.com. Well, we talked about supply chain challenges earlier on the show, but you know what's a bigger challenge? Finding this guy at National Farm Machinery Show. But that is what we did here at the Great Plains booth. A year ago, you were talking about just used equipment trends, prices. You hadn't ever seen anything like it. Here we are a year later. How dynamic is the used equipment market, Greg? Well, Tyna, my way of describing it is I've, I've run out of adjectives. It's all, as hot as it was a year ago, which was the hottest I'd ever seen by a factor, huge factor, Amazingly, through the end of 22, the use values kept going up across the board. And when the calendar flipped, there was a lot of people thinking it can't go any higher because now we're taking out the year-end tax buyers, November, December. But sort of God, use values have gone nothing but up since January. So the market is still all about availability. When the right piece of used equipment shows up, even if it's got higher hours. And one thing too, we're seeing auction pricing, strong pricing out of the deep south. And that's always been over my 33 years a sure sign that, you know, that's a hot market when used values are exploding higher. Well, you always have the latest insights with used equipment trends. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining us for National Farm Machinery Show this year. Thank you all of you for joining us as well. Be sure to tune in next week. We're headed back to the studio to work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.